The digital revolution has, in some ways, made the world a lot smaller. We can speak to anyone, anywhere in the world, from the computer in our pocket, and everything from weddings to presidential elections are now live-streamed. But pushing back against this flow, we've seen live events, like conferences, growing more popular than ever. We can hear people speak and debate, but most importantly, we can mingle and meet like-minded people, allowing for spontaneity to bring us those chance encounters that are so special. And today on the podcast, I have Lindsay Smalling. She's CEO of the SOCAP Conference. That stands for Social Capital Markets. It's held every year in San Francisco, and it's arguably the biggest event focused on driving new global markets at the intersection of money and meaning. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have a big impact. The SOCAP conference is being held on the 22nd to the 25th of October. She's worked with the conference in a range of roles since 2014. She's also worked at Impact Assets, helping them develop their Impact Assets 50, a list of impact investors. And she talks about her journey from being an arts major to finding her feet in the world of finance. Now, hopefully my conversation with Lindsay gets you excited for the conference. I'll be heading over at the end of October. And if you are too, please do reach out so we can catch up. And if not, stay tuned because I'll be bringing back a whole swag with great interviews and there'll be lots of coverage on Instagram and Twitter. So let's get into it. All the details and links are on my website at johntreadgold.com. You can also find my email address and drop me a message from over there as well. All right, enough out of me. Here's my conversation with Lindsay Smalling. Here we go. So, Lindsay, the CEO of an annual conference, the event's one month away, so I'm very grateful you could spare me some time. Has it become frantic yet, or have you and the team got everything under control? Yeah, it starts to sort of feel frantic in, like, June. I usually feel like I am I can maintain my inbox till June, but then it starts to ramp up that early. So this is kind of when it's at a fever pitch, and then we hit a little calm before the storm once program book goes to print and all the big pieces are locked in about three weeks out. Good stuff. Well, look, I'm excited to be heading over to San Fran to the conference this year. It'll be my first time. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of what SOCAP is all about and sort of where it came from? Sure. Yeah. SOCAP started in 2008. And if you think back to 2008, that was sort of in the wake of the global capital markets collapsing. And so the founders of SOCAP had already been bringing together an ecosystem of social entrepreneurs and investors who were seeing these opportunities to have social and environmental impact through their investments. We're also starting to realize a bunch of foundations. We're seeing that it wasn't always grant capital that was needed. Sometimes loans or even equity investments were the way to fuel some of the things that could have the biggest impact aligned with their philanthropic initiatives. But most of these things were in silos. They were foundations talking to other foundations or venture capitalists talking to other venture capitalists. And so SOCAP started really as a way to convene the marketplace to say, 
we all see this intersection of money and meaning and we should all be talking to each other because we have different sort of assets, constraints, et cetera, to offer each other. And that's really what the conference has continued to be. We think of ourselves as the big tent convening in this space where many other events are invite only or targeted at a specific sector or industry. We keep getting bigger because we say, you know, if you're trying to use the power of markets to drive positive impact, then this is a great place for you to be and meet other what we call valuable strangers. So with bringing such a cross-sector group together, it's often the people you didn't know you needed to meet that end up being the most valuable part of coming to SoCap. You know, I wonder whether conferences are still relevant these days with, with digital disruption and, and all of these factors. I mean, we're on, we're on a Zoom call today and there's these big live stream events. And while some people may think conferences would become less relevant in some ways, it's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of conference fatigue. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> I think everyone does. But, you know, there's really, there's nothing like the ability to just sort of immerse yourself in some ways that it's that ability to just commit to say, I'm going to go do this for a day, two days, three days. And I think people come away from SOCAP feeling really inspired. So as much as I could speak to the value of face-to-face -face meetings and connections and all that, like the aura around it is just that you're around all of these people from around the world who are doing amazing things that you could never read enough magazines or, you know, watch enough cool documentaries. <laughs> and then you feel close to them. You're all there together. And I think it makes everyone there feel empowered about the work they're doing and then gives them more tools to do it. So it definitely is also that most people tell us that they could spend the budget to fly to, you know, 20 different meetings or they could just come to SOCAP and take all 20. And so that's where I think the sort of value proposition still, you know, in a more concrete way pays off for people. That's right. That's right. And I think, I think it's dangerous to call it a, a finance conference, but there are those elements. And I think for people that have been to traditional finance conferences, these kind of events, these sort of with a social enterprise focus are so different. And as you say, it's a big tent and there's so many different people from lots of different backgrounds. And it really is super interesting, you know, in those breakout moments at lunchtime and, and at the coffee breaks, just bumping into people from everywhere with some amazing stories. And I think from my perspective, looking for podcast guests and trying to find those interesting stories and bring them back home, it's going to be quite a feast. So I'm excited about that. And I just wonder, you know, as the sector as a whole has evolved, how have you seen the event itself change? Well, so it started, as I sort of mentioned, and partly because of our location in San Francisco as a conference with a lot of venture type investors and a lot of early stage entrepreneurs who are trying to use for-profit business models, and they were sort of caught in between not being a great fit for traditional VC, not being a great fit for traditional philanthropy. So it was this sort of direct investing, private equity type marketplace that we were convening in the very early days. But as the sector has evolved and impact investing, to some people's dismay, has sort of broadened what impact means, that it's not necessarily direct investing that it's a lens on across all asset classes. I think that's a shift that the conversation around impact investing has taken, that we've seen the conference reflect that too and have curated programming to reflect that shift. So understanding, I think that the driving thing for me has always been just understanding how much space there is that's left unexplored in between traditional philanthropy and 
markets that only maximize return with no heed for social and environmental impact. It's just illogical when you look at that. And so understanding that there's so many places in between those two sort of polar ends of the market that there's really exciting possibilities to explore that have been sort of overlooked. And so we now represent that whole range and in representing that range have seen more government players and international development players show up. We've seen academia show up. We've seen many more corporations come to the party. We have now entrepreneurs who are operating at massive, you know, international scale with thousands of employees. So they don't look like some early stage, you know, homegrown entrepreneur. And we also have big institutional investors, major financial institutions. It felt like a big shift a few years ago when groups like Bain Capital and TPG launched these impact funds. So just trying to really keep the big tent approach and say, let's bring those into the conversation. Let's not sort of split hairs about what's impact and what's not. I think while preserving the integrity of impact, it benefits all of us to stay in one conversation and to help everyone move along, you know, how do we take this to scale? What does real impact mean? And have that be a dialogue rather than taking sides. So I strayed into a few different pieces there, but that's been sort of the evolution of this industry, I feel like, is this tension between wanting scale and then resisting scale because of the ways that it maybe isn't perfect. And so it's been a fascinating position to sit and watch that evolution from. That's right. And this this issue of scale and, and the benefits and I guess the drawbacks of it. And that makes me think about San Francisco as a city. You know, we all know it, its heritage is, is the home of the tech startup. But I wonder how is the social enterprise ecosystem there and, and how those two sort of shaped each other? It still feels like a vibrant place for social entrepreneurship, I think because of the venture capital legacy. So if you are looking to raise money, whether you're a social entrepreneur or not a social entrepreneur, it's still a place where a lot of money flows. It's challenging to afford an apartment, to afford the cost of living, all of those things. But, you know, entrepreneurs are scrappy and they make it work and they start cohabitation enterprises <laughs> to make it possible for all of them to be there. I think there's more and more hubs. We actually have a report that's going to be announced at SOCAP this year that talks about sort of entrepreneurship ecosystems within the U.S. and another one that's entrepreneurship ecosystems around the world. And those are developing quickly in tons of different major metro areas. There's a lot of benefits to being in the same place every year in October. So San Francisco has been a good home for us. And I think it's now just sort of on people's calendar. And it's a nice chance to get to the West Coast many years. But I would say we also recognize that there's real limitations. And so we've started taking SOCAP on the road to take it to more places within the United States for physical events. We're also partnering with the GSG, the Global Steering Group on Impact Investing, to be part of their event in Santiago, Chile this year. And then we've started, we have a podcast called Money and Meaning. We are doing much more digital content. And so a big part of understanding our role in the growth of this ecosystem is how can we serve some of those roles as a convener that aren't so located in San Francisco with a flagship conference. Good stuff. And, and for people that might be on the fence or people that are heading over, um, you know, you've talked about a few, 
of the events that are on, but are there any um, key highlights that you want to sort of mention that are, that are looking really interesting? It is so much about the people that it's made me very humble about the content. You know, for people to decide to come, it's never going to be because there's one speaker there. It's too expensive of a ticket and conference. And like you said, there's so many other ways to hear a speaker's talk. It's about the people you're going to meet. And so for me, just seeing, you know, I love watching our registration and just being fascinated by all the new people who sign up every year. It's not the usual suspects. Uh, one of the things I'm most excited about this year is that we're partnering with a group called E180 that runs these brain date programs at conferences. They were at the Skull World Forum this year, and I know they participate in a lot of other conferences, but they provide this facilitation by creating this topic marketplace for attendees where people aren't just setting up meetings by your title or your company and reaching out and sort of, you know, the same people get blasted with tons of invitations, but on a topic basis, people posting topics that they want to engage around, other people responding to those topics, and just the tech platform that they provide, plus the on-site sort of concierge and lounge service, I think is going to be a huge benefit to that valuable strangers networking piece that I really think is a highlight for so many at SoCap. Oh, look, that sounds great. And moving beyond that transactional concept of, you know, oh, I could do business with that person because they're in my field to make it more of a, a thematic factor of I've got a certain question or I'm intrigued, you know, question I need to answer and, and try and get a group together to have that question and answer kind of session. That sounds great. And I wonder for a conference focused so much on impact investing, do you have any sort of uh, measurement yourself on the impact of the event? We take a lot of care in the ways that we select our vendors and our site and all of those things to make sort of the sustainability piece a real priority for us. I think one of the most amazing collaborations we have there is with a group called Trip Zero that helps us book all of our hotel rooms so attendees get discounted rates in San Francisco, but with the booking fees that they get for facilitating that, they purchase carbon offsets. And they've been able to offset the full travel footprint for all attendees, not just the ones who book hotel rooms for the last three years. You know, we send them our full attendee list just in terms of where people are coming from. And then they do this whole calculation of, you know, if you're coming from outside of California, you're probably flying. If you're coming from inside California, you're probably driving. They calculate the carbon footprint of that travel because conferences are one of the biggest footprints of all just because of the travel. And so that's been huge for us because that's just sort of magically disappears. But then as far as our more social impact, it's been hard for us to quantify. I will say that. I'll just admit the challenge because I think you want the real talk is, you know, we know that we, we scholarship about 150 social entrepreneurs to come to the conference every year, which I know in my heart and soul that there's huge impact there, but it's so anecdotal that it's hard to put, you know, sort of data around what that enabled for all of them. We know that hundreds of deals get started, done, launched from SOCAP because people tell us about those all the time. But we can't say that we've, you know, facilitated this many deals in the impact space. So all of those things, we have a hard time quantifying. I think the metric that I'm using now is is audience. I've just become more keenly aware that we're still 
too much of a well-kept secret. <laughs> you know, this field has grown tremendously, but if I, even in San Francisco, go to a tech meetup, nobody in that room has heard of impact investing. That's a shame because they're all coming into a lot of money from the IPOs that are happening. They're all young people who care about these issues and it's just a miss. And so as much as we feel like scale has happened because some of these bigger banks are coming into the space, the reality is that most people kind of avoid talking about finance or thinking about finance. And this is something that everyone who has a bank account can think about where their bank account is and feel really empowered and feel better about what they own. And so taking it down a notch to make it a real conversation about how we understand money and our values and how those things go together and make it a mainstream conversation to me is how I'll, I'll be able to sort of measure the impact of SOCAP going forward. That's right. And I think that everybody who I ask about impact measurement um, on this show, they all, you know, their first statement is it's really hard and everyone's yeah. <laughs> battling with that. And there's, there's plenty of metrics thrown around. Um, you get the awkward silence every time you ask that question. Yeah. Well, people have definitely got, you know, they, they sort of take a deep breath, and then they, you know, they dive into it and that sort of, well, this is, you know, this is where we're at and this is where we're trying to be. And these are the challenges we've got. So it's great to have those conversations, but I think it's very true about this issue. The way I kind of gauge, I think the way I'll gauge the whole sector is when we can move beyond the definition stage, when we don't, you know, when you get up on stage, do you have to define your terms of what is impact investing and how does all fit? Will we get to a time when, you know, it's kind of the way that venture capital is, I think is a, is a good explanation and was before my time, but this idea that at one stage, you know, that kind of alternative investment wasn't as mainstream as, as it is now. And there was still a, an evolution of that. So that's something to look forward to. But I wonder talking about, you know, this sort of evolution and, and, and that it is still relatively early. I wonder how you found yourself in this space and, and what your career journey was like? In hindsight, it makes perfect sense, which I think probably most people would say something like that. But I took a really winding path from, you know, undergraduate in religious studies to following some friends to the East Coast, where I worked in very traditional finance, mutual funds and institutional investing. But that was really my first introduction to the finance world. I was basically an administrative assistant. And so really, I was learning a whole new vocabulary. And that was my first engagement with, with finance. You can go through a lot of your life without ever learning what uh, debt and equity mean. We all know what it means in practice. But just those terms, even those terms, like really alienate a lot of people from this conversation. So, and so then I worked in corporate social responsibility for a little while, realizing that I wanted to do something that, that felt like it mattered more. But then that was, that was around 2008, sort of as the term impact investing was being coined, as SOCAP was starting. It was also as the markets were melting down and corporate social responsibility took a back seat because all of these companies were struggling to stay alive. So they weren't focusing on, you know, their volunteering programs. And so it just immediately kind of felt to me like an unsustainable way to really address these problems. And I started to hear about things like Kiva and, and these other sort of for-profit entrepreneurship models and was really, really drawn to those. I ended up going back to business school at Columbia and used that time in business school to really 
do my own research about impact investing, social entrepreneurship, because it, it wasn't taught in the business schools yet. Um, they're sort of behind a little bit. And I was coming from the Bay Area, which was sort of the hotbed of these conversations. So moved back here afterwards, started working with both SoCap and a firm called Impact Assets as soon as I got back to the Bay Area in 2012. And I worked for both organizations for about three years at Impact Assets, had the pleasure of getting to know Jed Emerson and Fran Siegel, who are both luminaries and wonderful people in this space and learned a ton from them working on the Impact Assets 50, which um, curates a list of about 50, of exactly 50 fund managers in the space each year, you know, and working with Jed on the Impact Assets issue briefs. I just learned so much so quickly about the industry and at the same time was working on SOCAP each year as a just contractor on different tracks and then you stick around anywhere long enough. And I took on more and more at SOCAP and became the CEO last year. Very good. I've heard that a couple of times when I've asked people, how did you become CEO? And they said, oh, you just work there long enough. You'll end up at the yeah. top. <laughs> yeah. Those mailroom stories aren't as hard as you think. It's just longer at a bigger company. Yeah. And you got to be dedicated. But um, totally. you know, I really like hearing the stories of how people found their way. I think there's a lot of people in finance that, that aren't really comfortable with their roles and they're a little bit frustrated and they're not really having the purpose or the impact that they'd like to. So it's good to share that story and, and help people understand how they can move on. And there is this whole other side of the industry that can really capture as you said, you know, the arts major can come across and learn about bonds and equities and um, find their way. And there are more roles than simply, you know, running an impact fund. You can you can work at a conference and tell the stories or you can, you know, run a podcast and, and interview people and those sorts of things. So that's great to bring that out. But I just wonder this issue, and, and I might sort of be on the wrong track here, but if, you know, if the conference itself was launched, you know, in 2008, so that was at the end of a of a bull run with with strong markets, but obviously that came crashing down. And, you know, we're perhaps approaching the end of the business cycle at the moment. How do you think that those business cycles influence the interest and the, the growth of something like responsible investing? And I guess I don't really want to put it in the category of philanthropy, but that, that element and, and certainly with millennial generation often being described as, as the key sort of proponents of it, but a lot of them having not experienced a downturn. So I wonder, do you feel there's a similarity there or perhaps it's contrary, perhaps it'll um, be able to weather a storm better than, than mainstream markets? I kind of think the latter, but maybe that's my Pollyanna. Um, you know, sort of what I was saying about everyone just understanding where what their money does when they sleep at night. I always like when people phrase it that way because it's sort of that simple, is that your money is working for you wherever it is, whether it's working for you or against you. And and I just see that with the market's rise and fall, that so much of what is happening is totally outside of what anybody who has their money in the market understands or feels connected to or controls. And so part of the... The mandate, I think, is for all of us to just know what we own. If you really know what you own, I think that will weather things better than putting your money into pipelines because someone said that was a good asset class, you know, and you don't know what that means. Is that aligned with your values? How does that work? How does that make money and how does it lose money? Like if you invest in your local pizza store, 
you know that you get pizza once a week <laughs> and you know that like you'll support their fundraiser. So I, I'm really drawn to a lot of the ways that impact investing has merged in some ways with the, the local investing movement, because I think it's just for many people, that ability to know your, what you own ties in really well with investing in a much more local and connected way. And that allows us to have a more sort of nuanced and personal relationship with our money and what it's doing. And so if you know that you were expecting to make a 20% return and you make up a 6% return, but you saw that business grow and try and learn things and whatever, you're okay with it not being at whatever market rate is. So I don't think we're going to completely lose opportunities for our money to both have impact and provide sort of financial sustainability for us, even if the markets crash. And if what that drives is people saying, I really was unaware of what I was holding and it affected me in a negative way, which is what came out of that 2008 crash. I think some of the really powerful stories in impact investing are people who were already becoming aware of the markets, pulled their money out and then have had outsized returns ever since because they never felt that dip. So I'm an optimist. Yeah, that's a really interesting take that uh, people who are more aware of, of I guess, it, I guess it's an ESG issue, isn't it? That, you know, it's sort of the canary in the coal mine in that they're the ones that are watching a little bit more closely and not simply running on momentum. And that if you are watching it from a values perspective, then it won't be a matter of, oh, but I think we can squeeze some more returns out. It's simply, no, there are negative signs. This is not good for anybody and I'm going to get out. So yeah, interesting perspective there. But um, look, I'd better let you get back to the conference. But before that, I always ask my guests for a book recommendation. But to mix that up a bit, I'd like to ask you for the name of a book that you've read more than once. What's something that you keep going back to? You know, I have a very good memory. So I don't think I've ever read a book more than once because I don't think there would be any joy in that for me. I guess the exception to that would be um, that I have two-year-old twins. And so I've read Good Night Moon more times than I could count. <laughs> so lots of children's books over and over. I would say one that's always stuck with me and I don't even know why it has. And so I probably maybe will read it again someday, but probably the one I recommend all the time is a book called Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. He's an amazing writer. And what I loved about Crossing to Safety is that nothing really happens in it. It's just a story and somehow it just, it was so beautiful to read for that. So that probably doesn't invite many people to read it, except for I'll just say it's a really unusual and beautifully, beautifully written book in the sense that it's just a story. Oh, very good. Is it fiction? It is. Okay. Good stuff. Well, yeah, you, have, <laughs> you haven't let us, let, given us too many details there, but um, definitely sounds interesting. And this memory sounds like quite an affliction. You probably don't even have to pull out Goodnight Moon anymore. You can just recite it. And pretty much. I know where the mouse is on every page. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Well, look, thanks a lot for your time today, Lindsay. All really exciting. Got me even more excited than I was previously about the conference and uh, look forward to seeing you over there. We're really excited to have you there and thanks for having me on. All right. Cheers, Lindsay. Bye. Bye.